welcome to the Meditation Conversation. This is Kara Goodwin, your host, and today I'm so honored to welcome Wendy Oak onto the show. Wendy is the niece-in-law of Alma Rumball, and, and Wendy's fascinating in her own right, but we'll start first by talking about Alma. I discovered Alma's work through my friend Paul, who has a direct line to the beyond, and he came across the site almamatters.ca through what he calls guided digging one day, and he sent me the link. And he'd sent me several links that day, and it was this site that really captured my attention. I, I was immediately intrigued, and I felt resonance and fascination with this wonderland, which is Alma's art. So I contacted Wendy to invite her on to speak. And since then, we've exchanged several emails, which are just so rich and beautiful. And it's been such a joy to be connected. Uh, I just love discovering jewels like Alma's work and Wendy, which are like these little treasure chests that are being offered to humanity for our spiritual development and evolution. So it's such a joy. Thank you, Wendy. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here too. Oh, yay. So Alma Rumball was your husband's aunt. Yeah. And Alma was born in 1902 in a tiny village in Ontario, Canada. And she was a pottery artist. And at the age, I think it was the age of 50, is this correct, when she experienced her vision? Around 50. We're not exactly sure of the exact date, but yes, early 50s, yes. Okay. So she had a vision of Christ with a panther where Christ told her that she must draw and write. Is this correct? That's right. Got okay. it so far. <laughs> okay. And so this was a turning point for Alma. She became clairvoyant and she began automatic drawing and she could create these incredibly intricate prolific drawings but the work was coming through her not from her and her hand was moving by itself um, there's a documentary on this phenomenal woman and I'll put a link in the show notes I highly encourage you to watch um, and in this documentary I think it's you Wendy saying she could sit and talk to you and the hand would continue to draw yeah. So she's just like really, she called it the hand, correct? Yeah. Yeah. She completely denied authorship of them. And she said, oh, I can't accept credit for them, dear. You see, I don't do them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and she said sometimes there were beings around who would give her instruction as well. So it seems that this vision really opened up just in her access to a whole other realm or who knows how much access she had prior to that vision. But it's, I know there's that, there's a one piece in there called starry stairs, which seems to have been that turning point for her where she'd always been an artist, but things really went into a different dimension. And, and it seems like starry stairs was perhaps the, the yeah. foreshadowing of what was coming or that in between before she'd totally given up command and it's important to know that she was not a trained artist she just loved to do this drawing but she never took any art training or classes and uh, that's important too that somebody called her previous work tedious watercolors oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
before the hand took over. So her style completely changed after that. Oh, wow. So, so what's so interesting about these drawings is not only that they're automatic and she doesn't claim any, any, um, I'm wanting to say authorship, but that wouldn't be correct with that. No, guess. that's what I do. That's what, oh, okay. She was not the author of these particular paintings. Okay. Okay. So that in and of itself is fascinating, but there is something in these photos or photos, um, drawings. It's like they're encoded. Um, and so they're very intricate. There's a lot of detail in them and, but they can be activating. It's like they can, um, initiate or something. (laughs) I don't know. Do you want to speak a little bit about this? Yes, I, I was given a specific sentence, and this was through a master teacher while I was in Australia opening a portal to Atlantis and was invited to bring Alma's Atlantean writing. She wrote about 200 pages on Atlantis with abstract drawings of them. And I had to give them to the teacher, and he was told to download each one of the drawings through his third eye. And he said, the Ascended Masters have a message for you. They are telling me to tell you that they must be marketed as the sacred language of light, that they are activation drawings with codes embedded in them for the elevation of humanity at this time. And I think I've been since told that each section of that sentence is even a coded message. And Mm -hmm. it's specific. It's for this time. And it's to raise humanity's consciousness. And it's activating something already in us. It's just jump-starting and a catalyst for something wonderful to happen on your progression of your growth. Wow. Okay. So when you talk about at this time, how many years ago was that? Because we've just entered the Aquarian age. So I assume this happened in the Piscean age. Yes. Yeah. So what is very interesting is what Alma appeared to write and the way we tend to date the drawings are she started with pencil crayon. So they may have been in the 50s, I'm assuming. Um, And you have to bear in mind that she died in 1980, and I met her in 1972 and was having a family, and I really had no idea that 47 years later I would be showing them to the world, which is what I was told I would do. So I didn't have every conversation and asking her all those questions because I was only 25 and had three kids and... You know, well, not at 25, but I was having three kids over the time. So Uh I wish I had asked her a lot of these other specific times. But if you look at the pencil crayon or pencil crayon drawings as the simplistic first ones, then she discovered she got a better result with pen and ink and went over the pencil crayon drawings with black ink. Then she discovered, or a little Huntsville's art store started selling um, colored inks. And then the final stage was metallic inks. So in something like Joan of Arc, there's the pencil crane drawings. Then the next stage is the black pen and ink. Then she's added some colored ink. And finally, the sword and the helmet and things are in the metallic ink. So mm-hmm. it, that can span 20 years. So when she wrote the, um, the writings, which I call the Atlantean writings, That would have been really early, and that's in the 1950s. And she writes about a new age. Are you 
is humanity ready for the new age of light, she calls it. Mm -hmm. And that was in the 1950s. So she had no experience with any other people or teachers or information downloads other than from her spirit realm. And they were talking about a new age then. Oh, wow. So she's talking about life in Atlantis as one golden age and what happened to them and their downfall. And as I've learned through my um, immersion and study of the Edgar Cayce material, that we have almost come full circle with a lot of souls who were present in Atlantis existing now, because as soon as we split the atom, we got to the place where Atlantis had been destroyed because of the misuse of power. And so we're back at a choice point, I think, again, for the Aquarian age and this new age, which way are we going to go? Are we going to destroy ourselves or are we going to raise our consciousness enough to not make those mistakes in this new age? Right. Fascinating. Oh, well, I think it's clear that that the drawings span, they span time because that is so relevant for now, which is what, 70 years later, more or less from, from that time. And it's, it is, I mean, there's so much talk right now about the transition and how we're entering a new age. And, um, and I know just from my own experience that these drawings are alive. I mean, they are, they are activating and they're, you know, so it's not like, whatever was embedded within them when they were created is no longer relevant or, you know, because time does pass. And, and, um, so it, you know, it, if we think of things linearly, maybe we would be tempted to say, well, if she was talking about a new age and now we're in a new, new age, <laughs> then maybe it's not relevant anymore. But I know, um, I think I shared this with you over email when I was watching the documentary. I had to watch it. It's a, it's a short documentary. It's 45 beautiful minutes, but it's, uh, I had to watch it in two parts because I just ran out of time. And the first day I could feel that my crown was on fire. There was so much activity at the crown and I could feel as though something was drawing on my crown like I could feel motion like a drawing motion on my crown and then it took me two days to be able to sit down with the documentary again just with the way that time worked out and so I sat down and started watching it again and I had for completely forgotten about my crown and as soon as I started watching it again my the same thing happened the crown lit up was hot and then I was feeling drawing on it again and um so it's very active. And even when I was taking notes, preparing for this, and as we're talking again, my crown is on fire. So <laughs> like, there's definitely <laughs> life going on with this. Um, and that's seeing the picture or the, the drawings in the film. And you're not, the film is really more around the story. So you're seeing samples of the drawings but you're not necessarily really digging into the drawings themselves and 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 studying them and having time to really take them in or meditate on them but I know when I finished uh the day that I finished it and I went to bed that night as I was falling asleep I was just seeing the um 
I was seeing portions of the drawings, you know, seeing the um, little, little details rather than like big, you know, I wasn't seeing like Joan of Arc, for instance, but I was just seeing like spirals and tiny um, circles and things like that. So I, I associate that with a transition, you know, when I'm falling asleep, I'm transitioning into a different state of consciousness to see those organically hours. I mean, I, I had watched that in the morning. So this is hours later. It just indicated to me that at a different level of my consciousness, they were at work. Like some, you know, they were still working on me (laughs) and, and I, I am, you know, I can't say what, you know, I haven't pinpointed like, oh, this was activated or whatever, but just, I do know something was going on. So it was really beautiful. (laughs) I can share with you that after 47 years, I still have that experience of, of what I call the downloads from and with Elma. Almost every other night I dream of Elma at some point or some drawing or some aspect of it. And that's after years and years and years. So it's almost like there's an ongoing flow of connection in the dream time that's perhaps more intense than when we're in our left brains or trying to process anything in the waking conscious. Right, yeah. That's fascinating that after all this time, it's still working on you. (laughs) It is. And I noticed that we didn't say the name of the documentary when you said you're watching. So the documentary is the Alma drawings for anyone else who wants to hear the name of the film. (laughs) Yes. And I will put a link to it in the, in the show notes as well. So you can access that if you're curious and I definitely recommend doing so. So interestingly, you know, we're talking about our own experiences of this, but I find it it incredible. The Dalai Lama has seen these drawings. He saw them in the seventies. And, um, and then he, he looped in his, his spiritual advisor, correct? So the spiritual advisor to the Dalai Lama, like let that sink in for a moment. (laughs) Kalu Rinpoche is his name. Say, Say it once more. Kalu Rinpoche. Okay. And, and, um, he identified many of the figures in Alma's drawings as Tibetan deities. So she says in the film that she was drawing these faces and she had no idea who or what they were. So she's like, well, the hand was drawing these and she had no cognitive relationship with them. She just knew that they were, knew them as faces and she lived a really sheltered life. She didn't travel. I think I saw something about she maybe went to Toronto once. Um, but, you know, she was not a world traveler. And, of course, this is before Internet and, and so forth. So it wasn't like the information age where information was everywhere and you could just go and Google, um, you know, what Tibetan deities or whatever. Um, and today we have so much access to so many images right at our finger uh, fingertips so that it just might be hard to kind of relate to the fact that that she was in this tiny town in in Ontario and these are Tibetan this is like the other side of the world which is figuratively even further away now than it is or then that it is now because of the internet everything is so so small, but 
She was a Christian, a devout Christian, and I haven't run across anything saying she'd ever studied or practiced Buddhism. No. Yeah. No, actually, she didn't even like the idea when Jeremy um, asked her, uh, it wasn't Jeremy, it was another man doing the interview through the audio tape that we used, asked her if what she thought of reincarnation. And she says, oh, no, no, I don't like the idea at all. And she said, your soul goes immediately to heaven. And the brilliance of Jeremy is that while she's being asked that question, the drawing on the screen is Alma came to earth as Joan of Arc, which yes. indicates reincarnation. So she and herself had these Christian beliefs, but like Edgar Casey, they were told mind-blowing things and dogma-blowing things um, that were beyond their belief system. It had nothing to do with what she believed. Her right. hand wrote what it wrote. Right. And so she had to accept this without judgment. She had to accept the drawings without judgment because they didn't fit into her religious understanding. And she was not, not out to, you know, she was a recluse. She wasn't out to get attention or, you know, she wasn't making these claims for, you know, any, any personal profit to say the least. Um, and of course, like you say, we've got that that writing where the hand had written, um, she came to earth as Joan, as Joan of Arc, and then she doesn't believe in reincarnation. So, and in the documentary, it said, um, somebody said that she burned a fair amount of the drawings and the information that came through because she couldn't accept it. That's what she told me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and because they defied the church, the, the, um, what she had learned from the church. And I know, I think I heard it in a podcast perhaps where she shared with you, like the church wouldn't like some of the things that I've been told. You said the church would be very angry about, yeah. <laughs> about what. And then she just, I mean, I know that some of the things that were written were so personal. That's why I haven't made them public until just recently when I thought maybe people could handle it but being told things if you can imagine being a Christian or in the states it's Episcopalian so uh, she was Anglican um, and knowing the church doctrine and the church dogma and then your hand writes Alma is the Holy Ghost I mean you just don't even know where a person could put something like that. It's pure blasphemy to her. Mm -hmm. And so I can only imagine if if we still have that, those pieces of writing, what on earth did it write that made her burn them? <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think somewhere I had heard too, you know, well, the Holy Ghost is, Alma is the Holy Ghost, but also just that I think she said something about like, God is a woman or, or the Holy ghost is a woman or. Yes. When, yeah. when the film shows in theaters, women cheer. I think it's so funny when they <laughs> yeah. hear that. She said, the Holy ghost. And then I said, yes. And she said, it's a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, that made so much sense because I've always known my experience experientially has been with Sophia as mm. a, a creatrix, divine feminine entity energy mm -hmm. and to me th 
the trinity of three men creating all of life just doesn't ring true. So the Father and the Son I can accept, and the Holy Spirit, I believe, always has been feminine until it was written out of the Bible, and they changed the wording Sophia to wisdom, and it's suddenly it's a quality, it's not a woman. And so I always felt, well, of course, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit is the divine feminine. You need the divine masculine and the divine feminine. And all of life is created by a balance of father, mother, God in some form. And so it made so much sense that when she said Alma, and I, I sometimes wish spirit would be much more straightforward and not so obtuse so that we have to try to interpret everything, but the wording, the name Alma in the um, Latino languages means soul. So it started to make sense to me that there is a feminine aspect to all of us that is that spark that is within each of us, that is our soul, that might be the expression of the Holy Ghost, not the little lady living in Huntsville, but she would have no context for that kind of information. And I just can't imagine how brave she was to keep going, even though she was told things that she knew she'd be in big trouble if people knew. Right. And what I loved is that she seemed, and I don't, I'm sure that there, maybe it was up and down with how she felt about what was happening. Um, But she seemed to, even though she couldn't accept perhaps intellectually what she was receiving, when she talks about the goodness of her guide, her genius that um, she has access to, she she fully seems to embrace him as a benevolence, a benevolent spirit and, you know, the guides who are helping her. So even though they're saying things that might actually scare her um, to the extent that she she burns some of the stuff that she produces, um, it's as though she really does um, trust also, but maybe there's some some confusion or, or fear or disassociation or something. No, I think it's really important to, to make the distinguishing factor between whether she saw the source as her guides. Now, as you mentioned, her genius, that's Abba Pasha, and he was a black man with a turban who was sort of stepping down the energies of the high Christ consciousness that she was communing with so that he would sort of help guide her with the lower level things and choices she had to make. But when she saw and drew the Christ face, the Christ image, she said, oh, I've I've seen his face many times. And her writings are in the voice of the Christ. It's almost as though she's in constant contact with that highest level of the Christ energy, not so much her guides. Mm. She wasn't even interpreting their being the source. It was the Christ energy that was the source. And especially in the Edgar Cayce material, when I do a presentation at the ARE, I know that Edgar Cayce said he did not like the term automatic drawings. And that was the automatism came from the surrealist in the art world, Andre Breton, who coined the phrase psychic automatism. So that's an art world term that applies there. 
But Edgar Cayce said he believed in inspirational drawings, not automatic drawings, because you could be accessing a lower guide, a lower influence, an outside entity that was giving you lower vibrational energy. And he didn't like that. People opening to automatic drawings where they were just a channel. But he said inspirational drawings were inspired by the highest source, which for him was also the Christ energy. So... I think it's really important to note that not for a second did she doubt. She was communing with and receiving from source. She said it's a power that pushes her hand. And when she called it the hand with like like capital H, it's the hand of God that she's talking about. So Abba was a guide and helper, but never for a minute did she think that was the source. Oh, that's that's a great clarification. Thank you. That's and that's really beautiful and important too about just that opening, you know, and 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 I think from a listener's perspective, you know, I suspect many of the people who are listening have an appreciation for it, but perhaps don't don't have experience uh, with automatic writing or in, versus inspirational writing. Um, but I think that goes. That's just a beautiful blanket to remember that when you're dealing even with meditation, you know, you are wanting to keep things in the highest light for the highest good of all concerned and and keeping things in the light because you do have, you know, you can open yourself up to, you're opening yourself up to energy. So, you know, keep your vibration raised and keep your intentions high so, so that you're not subjecting yourself to interference and it's not something to fear but it's just something to you know keep in mind and make sure that you are working with source as much as you're able to and define that and protect yourself and invite in those who love you and only those who love you there are different ways of phrasing all of that and uh again to coin Edgar Casey's writings when he said he wrote a really interesting piece on how he went to the Akashic record and a lot of people these days use oh yes I read the Akashic records and I mean you hear it far too often for me to believe every single one of them is going to the place that is the highest vibrational frequency but he would say how you have to go through the lower realms you go through the astral and you start seeing a lot of the entities that are very low frequencies that are sometimes pulling at you or trying to stop your journey and you may have to level go through all those different higher levels to finally get to the book of life which christians call it or the akashic record or to do the readings and i believe alma got a lot of her imagery such as the tibetan gods and deities from the Akashic records or or the collective unconscious. I did a psychology paper in my university training on if you don't buy the spiritual model, what's going on psychologically? And Carl Jung wrote about the collective unconscious where the computer of all that is, is what I call the Akashic records, holds everything, thought, world, word, and deed. So that's the collective unconscious as well in the spiritual term. Mm -hmm. So she was accessing that and mm. not the lower levels. Mm. That's fascinating. And when you when you talk about the um you know that that it was God and it was its own force that was actively moving her hand, 
one of the striking things that I noticed with the um, the drawings is the Fibonacci spiral. The Fibonacci sequence is is pervasive throughout every drawing. I think this is the golden spiral, which uses the golden ratio, and we see this ratio all throughout nature, from a snail's shell to the pattern of a sunflower. It's it's everywhere, and um, this to me seemed like another indication of a high presence being the creator of this rather than something deliberate by an individual. Um, especially when you think of, if you, if you parallel that with what you said about, you know, you could be talking to her and her hand would, you know, she'd be looking at you and talking to you, but her hand is off doing things by itself. But the precision with which this was happening is that, you know, and, and he did go into this also in the documentary, which I was really happy to see because he even had, um, you know, some mathematics, I think, overlaid on top. Say it again. Phenomenon. One more time. The five phenomenon. Five phenomenon. Yes, because that's the sacred geometry. Of, and it's important to pay attention to Carmen Saraceda, who was my friend, mentor, my daughter's godmother. She is a master painter and muralist, and she was Diego Rivera's assistant and lived with Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera when she was an apprentice. Oh my God. And so she said that Alma was drawing things like this that she had never been taught, such as you know, the, the content and the placement of and design and color. And she was doing, she was a master of that kind of painting, as she called it. Um, and she said, don't refer to them as drawings, refer to them as paintings, because she said drawings are often considered less than an underdrawings. And she never did an underdrawing. And Carmen said the only person to ever break all her rules of blocking of a, an underdrawing or a smaller painting to do a mural was Alma because everything she did was just first uh, the, the final uh, strokes of the, the ink or whatever she was using didn't base it on any underdrawing. So mm. but she, that's what she was saying. She learned things. There were rules and laws of art that she'd never been taught wow so so you mentioned the um the series of rectangular geometric images with the transcriptions on the bottom that relayed uh, related to atlantis and so can you can you talk a little bit about this series and um, because i i also was interested that alma had no knowledge about atlantis um, in the documentary it mentioned um, that you had given her a book, I think, on Atlantis. So she she had read it, but this was after she drew. And but yes, I had just given her a book, and I think it was on Atlantis and Mew or Lemuria, so the the first motherland. And she said, "Oh, it's a nice story and supposed to be true." I think. Yeah, <laughs> but it's I had given it to her, and um, so she knew nothing about this. And what was interesting is she went into a chest in her living room quite a ways into our relationship. I, I think it was like a year or two after I had already been visiting her and she had shown me the drawings. And then it's important for me to go back to what she told me my mission was. So don't let me forget. To no, say yeah, we're, we'll get on to that next. Yeah. 
he she opened his chest and she had a Christmas card box and all these three hole punch just eight eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper like you'd put in your binder mm -hmm. this pile and she said take these and hide them so she knew that there was information in there that would not be received and so I took them and I tried to match them up the best I could but they were all mixed up and and I tried to just all over my floor, I had them with subjects and predicates. Being an English teacher, that made yeah. sense to me. Where, how could I, you know, find the story in between them? So I rearranged them over a period of about four months, actually. And each one had this rectangular uh, picture at the top in pencil crayon, always abstract. And at the bottom, from page to page to page, there were these really hard to read bubble letters that were drawn in purple pencil crayon and it was really hard to read them and it was interesting that the ascended masters through my teacher in australia said they say that the story about atlantis and about alma being a queen of atlantis was very interesting but really it was only there to keep your left brain busy long enough trying to figure out the words so that you're getting the activation of the actual image at the top of the page through your right brain or your entire brain. So Atlantis story tells a story of Atlantis, but then there's a direct uh, communication to Alma from in the voice of the Christ energy. And then there's what I, we call the healing set. And it's broken into... Um, instead of the story going from one page to the next to the next, there were self-contained sheets where it would say there's the Holy Ghost series and there's the Tree of Life series. And in the Holy Ghost series, it would have an image and it would say this is a Holy Ghost, not the Holy Ghost. This is a Holy Ghost. It is to help Alma with the drawings. Or this is a Holy Ghost of Alma's. It is for those who are mentally distressed, emotionally distressed, or the very sick, or the blind. And so it's as though each one is a meditation tool. And actually, homeopath in the 1970s put Alma's healing set into his radionics machine, and he was actually treating people using the images that were on Alma's healing set. And of course, there was no data recorded or to find out whether it impacted or not, but that's what he tried anyway, which was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And in the tree of life one, it would say, this is a fruit of a tree of life. It is for, and then it would say what it was for. So that they're broken down into different categories. And sometimes she would have images of heaven but the material on Atlantis went from page to page to page in those hard-to-read bubble letters that were supposed to be keeping your left brain busy where you got an activation. Wow. That's amazing. One of them, the most important, I think, is uh, in the documentary, and you can get, I had, not all of the Atlantean drawings are printed, but the one that said Alma's insignia is really important because she drew circles and discs and things that were joined together and she called them insignias and this Alma's insignia was given to her in Atlantis and that was how she was known so it was like her signature so that energy that was Alma in Atlantis is Alma's insignia 
Oh, that's wow. one of them. Wow. And I think if I remember correctly, it talks about how she had, you, you mentioned she was the queen of Atlantis, but she had like saved them. Correct. Mm-hmm. So she had she like, drawing, yes, she was drawing in order to save Atlantis from chaos and the advice, the warning in there is to, and it actually says, I am your Lord. This is what I wish. Give your love to me and give your assistance to Alma, who was trying to save the world from chaos or destruction. It's said different ways, but it identifies, I am your Lord. And this is, I'm, and then in the writings, it says to Alma, uh, you have saved more souls than I did when I was on earth. When I return, I will make you my bride. There are writings about her being wife of David, and underneath it says Queen of Israel. There are a lot of things I don't have answers for, and I'm still trying to learn more about what it says. But at one point, they actually go beyond saying she was... And and when you research Atlantis, you find there were many queens, there were many feminine rulers. Um, But it's interesting that it actually says you have been queen of the universe. And what would Alma even think of something like that? It says she's been on many planets. You've been on Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. Now is your time to be on Earth. So there are things that in the 50s, she couldn't have processed. Right. Wow. Well, okay, so we, we did talk at the beginning about how you're married to Alma's nephew, Colin, and yeah. so you haven't known her your whole life. You know, it's not like you grew up with her. Um, and there's an interesting story about how you became involved with her. Can you talk about your, I think it was the first date with Colin. Is that yeah. right? Yes. Can you tell us well, about it was that? <laughs> Colin and I were both um, um, teachers, and I had just interviewed for a job at the school that he worked on and so we were sort of put together because we'd both come out of relationships and one of the teachers there thought we should meet each other so we said okay you know, that's that's fine and I didn't know whether I liked him or I didn't like him mm-hmm. and so while he was getting ready at his house I was just sort of looking around you know trying to pick up what he was about from his surroundings and I saw cat number one and cat number one has fur but it's covering what appears to be a human face behind it it's not cat eyes and cat features it's a human but with fur like a cat so I said what what's up with the cat and he said oh my aunt did that and I said oh could I please meet your aunt and I had no intention of saying that I didn't even know whether I'd like to win even been out on a date yet Uh but when you talk about spirit moving us, you know, I'm, we must have both been late according to our other relationships and we were supposed to meet and like get on with it. So on the yeah. first day, I asked to meet his aunt before I'd even got out with him. And so, and she didn't live where we live. We lived in Toronto and she, you know, Huntsville's two and a half hours north of Toronto for those who are wondering where Huntsville is. So that was the start of it. And then we did hit it off on that first date, luckily. Mm-hmm. And before long, he brought me up to see Alma. And I walked in the door in her little cottage. And she lived on Colin's family 
uh, property that had been Alma and Colin's mother's family property because Colin's mother was Alma's sister. And there were two spinsters, two maiden aunts, and Colin's father was a builder. So he built these two little cottages on the same property on the lake that the family had owned when they owned the Huntsville Dairy. And they live on Fairy Lake, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. And so I walked into her little cottage and these drawings were all over the floor, all over the, the Chesterfield, or we call it Chesterfield couch. <laughs> <laughs> and um, her walls were painted in her bedroom and it was just astounding to me. And when I first saw the, just the whole scene, I didn't know what to make of it because they were so beautiful and yet they were just like scattered everywhere because some of them she couldn't even remember drawing. She would just work on sections at a time. A lot of people look at the work and say, how long would it have taken her to do one of those? She never did one from beginning to end. She would sit in a little tiny half table at her kitchen, looking out the window with her back almost up against the stove and this piece of like, Bristol board size, we call it, and I, I you call it something else, but you know what kids do projects on. Like a, a poster board, maybe? Yes, poster board is what you call it. Mm -hmm. So those are the major big sizes of most of the drawings. And she would just race across a section of it, and then she'd throw it on the ground and pick up another one, and she would work on that section. And if it was big lines or small detail, it they were just always in a state of flux and therefore she would always say, Oh, they're not finished dear. <laughs> <laughs> so she wasn't giving them away. She wasn't signing them for people to see. I had to get her to sign them when I took them out to show them in the seventies because she hadn't even signed many of them. So that's the way it was all just total chaos. And the dog would run in and out and sometimes he'd run across the drawings. <laughs> <laughs> and so I knew that, I was so affected that I was almost speechless. I couldn't process what was happening to me, but I felt the tingling or the movement from into another dimension or state of consciousness. But I was only 25. I had a little three-year-old, and I didn't understand fully what was happening. But I'd had enough experience with my mother reading tarot cards and, and being interested since I was 15. So I... I was prepped for this. But then one day when I was showing my mother the drawings and we went back to see her, she just saw this one and she said, oh, that's you. And I said, I know. And it was, there's a whole series of them. More of them are at York University in Toronto in her permanent collection. They have 4,436 at York University in her estate collection. Oh, wow. And there are more that they own that looked like I did when I was 25. And it's true. So it's called Wendy Prophecy because I knew I was expected. And so the important thing, the important thing to note about this is that you had not met her yet. She was drawing your face yes. before you'd ever even met Colin. Yes. Yeah. In the, I met him in 1972. So even before you were born? Uh, no, I was or, born in 47. I was okay. born I'm old. <laughs> but anyway, she drew those like long before. So that comes to one of the next times that I saw her. And I, I walked in just to visit her because we were up visiting his parents. And 
I went to visit her and she was sitting with her eyes closed and her hand was doing a little circle like her finger was doing a circle on the side of the arm of the chair. And she said, just a minute, they're talking to me. And so I said, I just waited. And she said, they're telling me that you are the one who is divinely inspired to be the one to take the drawings to the world. Now, I, the look on your face now is the look on my face. And I, did, I had no idea what that meant. But as I jokingly say, it was the 70s. I said, cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> and so I said yes to heaven knows what. And if I had known then that 47 years later, I would still be doing this, I probably would have been terrified and not done it. But they didn't tell me anything about that. I just said yes, on, signed on the dotted line with that cool. And here I am. Wow. So I was given I was given my mission, and personally, I feel that in this digital age, when I got the website and Facebook, um, and we made the documentary film, and then it went out on the Spiritual Cinema Circle um, membership, and that was developed by Stephen Simon, who was friends with my teacher James Twyman. I'm ordained as a spiritual peace minister through Jimmy Twyman and the beloved community, and got my master's of divinity through two years of training in the seminary which was another whole amazing trip so at any rate um now i forgot how i even got started onto that it does it does oh yes yeah. so when they went out the dvd was picked up through me telling Stephen simon and um uh, debbie ford's sister uh ariel ford they founded the Spiritual Cinema Circle, which is like a film club, membership club. And there are members in 80 countries in the world. And they put the Alma drawings out on the one that showed the full feature film Conversations with God with Neil Donald Walsh. So it went to 80 countries around the world. And I thought, I am taking them to the world yes. <laughs> through the documentary. Right. Well, and you have... Um... I'm, I'm not sure exactly how the drawings fit into all of it, but I know that um, through our interactions and then through, you know, things that I've read and so forth, that um, you've had a lot of experiences like on Mount Shasta and in Glastonbury and in Italy and where different um, spiritual masters, I don't know, I, mean, I don't know if they were all masters, but, you know, were, you know, those who know, <laughs> let us say, um, have verified the vibration or that they have a connection to their own um, art. Or I don't know if you want to talk about that at all, but I found that really interesting. I found it really interesting, too, where they have led me in the parts that I didn't tell you that still close my mind more than many other things is I... They led me from being and staying in Glastonbury and staying at the Slipper Chapel, which is where all the pilgrims who were making a pilgrimage to the Glastonbury Abbey would take their shoes and walk the last mile. That's why it's called the Slipper Chapel. Oh, we and lost the sound there for a moment. So they would take their shoes off and walk barefoot to the last, the last mile. The last mile up to Glastonbury Abbey. And so... I didn't have any place to stay. My two companions had found places to stay together. They were sisters, but 
at 10 o'clock at night in pouring rain, someone gave me a, a little phone, a piece of paper with phone number and said, you might want to call this number because they don't advertise that they rent, but sometimes they take in people. So I ended up going to this place in the pouring rain, knocking on this door, and the woman said, well, we don't usually you know, rent. I have one single bed and one single room left. And we only rent to pilgrims. And she looked me up and down. She said, clearly, you're a pilgrim. Yeah. And it's dark at night and nowhere to stay. And I met a person there who gave me Jesse Ianni's book. And it was called the... Uh, the Codes of Light, something, and I can't remember the exact title, but it was about the lineage of women who carry these sacred codes of light. And I get it mixed up because I have a screenplay that we've been co-working on that's also called The Codes of Light. But anyway, and in reading this book, it was, she, this woman told me that she felt that Alma was part of the lineage or the line of women who carried these codes. The Magi were the active principle of the male magician, but the women held codes. And it was, again, for enlightenment. I hadn't been to Australia yet, so I didn't know the exact wording. But she gave me the book to read, and in it, it listed Mary Magdalene as one of the carriers of codes. And in Provence, in France, she had passed the codes on to her follower in this cave. And the woman who I was staying with, these women were the matriarchs of Glastonbury who were keepers of the Slipper Chapel. And that's why they were just low-key, understated, but they were the power structure of the feminine in Glastonbury. So this woman coordinated um, trips for tourists with Jesse Ianni from Mount Shasta. And Jesse Ianni would take people to Egypt and she would teach about Egyptian divine feminine. The woman, Carolyn Sherwood, I stayed with was the Glastonbury specialist. And she's the one who called everybody in Glastonbury. And I just sat at the cafe and waited for people to come. And there were cryptologists and there were seers and clairvoyants and all kinds of teachers. And one of those people told me about Damanhur in Italy, this spiritual community. And there are about a thousand people who live in Damanhur. And they're most noted for the temples of humankind, which is actually, I'm talking like the Vatican beautiful, carved into a mountain and unknown by people for eight years that they were even digging these temples. And temples of humankind are what makes Damanhur world famous. They don't advertise, but thousands of people go there for their mystery school teachings, for their solstice celebrations. And... I was lucky enough to go and be invited to do Alma presentations in Italy at Damanhur by the ambassador to the United States that I had met. And so I first learned about Damanhur and the copper, silver, or gold coils that they called selfic coils. And they said, oh, you have to go because um, these are supposed to have been from Atlantis. And you've got Alma's writings on Atlantis. You must go to Damanhur. Well, that was years before I actually ever did follow up and go there. But each person would give me input of what they saw or what they said Alma's drawings were. So I would learn a little more. And Alma never named any of her drawings. 
but when I first had the first exhibition at York University, they were making a catalog and they said, well, you'll have to name the ones that we have. They had about 48 of them. And they said, for insurance purposes. So I named them just loosely on what I saw when I saw them. And if, and I, ha if I hadn't sort of met people, well, this was in the 70s. I hadn't met that many. But over time, as I get prints made of them, um, when I went to Alma and I said, hope you don't mind that I've named some of them, but like they made me do it. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, oh, don't worry, dear. They'll tell you who they are. And that was so like, just easy. So as I learned more, as these teachers were presented to me in my travels, then I had much more context to understand the symbolism or to see with the lens that brought forth some of the imagery that is embedded in them that I wouldn't have known had those masters or teachers or seers not told me things. And mm -hmm. I just constantly, I'm a writer, so I've been writing five different books and I've been making notes and building on whatever I learned over those 40 years. And they took me all over the place. As I said, to Australia and the Ascended Masters, to Mount Shasta for the WESAC celebration and the Ascension movement, which I thought was totally separate from Alma. I wasn't even thinking Alma. I was... I'd been immersed in the goddess culture and the divine feminine, and I was kind of angry about um, the Inquisition and the witch burnings and the male hierarchies. And I was not interested in ascension material because I didn't want to hear about another hierarchy of men, mm -hmm. uh, frankly, the ascended masters. And then as I learned more and I saw there are pairings, there's the masculine and the feminine, but you, again, the feminine never gets the billing, the masculine does. So I was trying to learn more so that my prejudice and resistance to more male hierarchies could be melted away and I wouldn't feel that way. Mm. So I went to Mount Shasta and I learned a whole bunch more and I met more people and then Lo and behold, we went to town the first day we got there. And I said, you know, all right, what's, what do you do in the town of Mount Shasta? We want to learn about everything. And she said, well, there are only two roads in Mount Shasta, and Alma takes you up the mountain. And I looked at my friend, and Alma takes you up the mountain. This is about Alma. <laughs> we both said, okay. And as I said, fasten your seatbelts, because when things like this happened, it was always at jettist and speed where I was learning experiencing had no time to process it I was just in it mm. and Mount Shasta was one of those and the first way we got welcomed when we opened the WESAC celebration was by being welcomed by the citizens of Telos the Lemurians who lived inside the mountain so that's where we started and then Alma goes up past Panther Meadows and Panther Meadows, when Alma first had her vision of Christ, there was a panther standing beside her. And him, it, Christ energy, yeah. and a panther. And it took me 20 some odd years before I read in Animal Speak about totems. And I read Panther. And it said that Joseph's family name was Panteras and that Jesus was often called Jesus Ben Panteras, Jesus' son of the panther or his nickname was the Panther. Mm. So things like that just started to make sense. And then I learned about the, the Center for the Violet Flame and Guy Ballard and inspired by St. Germain and 
Saint Germain had been seen in Panther Meadows with a panther on the Alma Road up to the top of Mount Shasta. So I know. Wow. My and goodness. It, it, it's all been very empowering. Yeah, absolutely. And so much, so much to to unfold and and continue. I mean, it's just it's a big journey and it it's never ending. <laughs> What a blessing. I meant to follow up or just finish that piece about Jesse Ayani's book on the Codes of Light because the woman in Glastonbury referred my friends and myself to the Mary Magdalene specialist in France, in Provence, in St. Maximin. And there's a cave that's way up on a cliff. And that's where Mary Magdalene is said to have lived the last 30 years of her life. And kings and queens and popes made pilgrimage up to that uh, La Grotte, it's called, way, way, way up above the, the cloud line on this cliff. And it was closed to the public because it was very dangerous. It was falling rock, and it had been closed for five years. And yet we stayed with this lady who didn't speak any English. She took us into her home for five days. She walked us up around the closed barriers, up past the, the um, missionary and all the, the priests, or the monastery, rather, and the priest and just said, oh, taking some people up. And she waved and went, okay, bye. And we climbed and walked and climbed and climbed and climbed and climbed. And it was pouring rain. And I ended up going into this huge grotto with great big oak doors that you open the doors. And they used to hold Christmas mass in there while it was safe. And But there was no light, just two little tapers on the, the stone altar. And so we lit this taper, and as you walked around, this huge statue of Archangel Michael would appear, and another carved something was somewhere else, and there were little steps down to nooks and crannies. And so I sat down and put out, at that time, I didn't have any prints of Alma's work. I wasn't making prints. I just had a few little photographs. And I asked Mary Magdalene if Alma was, in fact, part of the lineage of the, the women who carried the codes of light. And suddenly this crash of thunder hit. And if you've ever been up in a rock stone mountain above the cloud line and thunder hits, trust me, it messes with your chakras. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> it just went crash. And I said, I'll take that as a yes. Mm. My friend said, we've got to get out of here. This is really dangerous. So we had to come down quickly. But how did I get guided by spirit to Mary Magdalene's cave when it was closed? after reading the book that said she passed the codes on in her cave. And then I'm there within a week. Wow. And it's cool. And so I just have to trust these things, you know? Yeah, what a blessing. Well, so let, let's talk about um, these codes and within the, within the drawings. Um, how do you suggest because as you you've mentioned that these prints are now available so you can go to the almamatters.ca website and you can see all the drawings that are available for uh i don't have i have 127 prints but i i'm not all of them have been put on that website so but most of them have (laughs) okay so you can see a, a good portion of the ones that are available for print so um and I and, and you and I are working together so that I can I can um, order some because I'm very excited to do that. Um, but how do you suggest practically 
the best way to utilize this from a personal perspective to utilize these prints. So they're very, as I mentioned, they're very detailed. They're very um, expansive. I'm, I'm just wondering, like, is it take it in sections, take it as a whole, like study it or just gaze at it or yes, everything or. <laughs> I think all of the above. And however, an individual is guided to use them is the most important thing. Because I, I, I try to emphasize that when people see them, they have reactions. The fact that they've been, and I'll say that sentence again, they're the sacred language of light. So that's the way, they're, the way they're communicating, through color, perhaps, through the forms, through the codes. They're the language used of light, and people may receive them differently. And they're activating something. So I would just stay open and allow whatever the experiences you're ha having to happen and activate what you and your soul particularly need, which may be very different from what somebody else would receive. People see things in the drawings that I don't see. And then they say, well, that's a ship or that's a this and I, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it can be whatever. And even the titles that I've given, they're loosely hung on these images because it's what I saw and they told me what their story was, therefore I could name them. But I always try to stay out of my own way, stay out of their way with interpretation too much or saying what it is because that's limiting. It's much ex bigger and ex more expansive than we think. Mm. So that if someone, I always make a joke when I'm doing a presentation, which I'm willing to do with you when everything's safe again. I'm hoping I can do this again. Yeah, is that choosing a drawing has nothing to do with the color of your coat. <laughs> <laughs> For some people, the more detailed ones are very busy and they like the simple um, pencil crayon ones or the ones that have less color, some are too intense for some. Whatever you're feeling in your belly or your tingling or whatever your, your sign is for yourself, I would first of all begin to tune into what that is because everybody would have a yes or no, and is this an invitation or no, this isn't for you feeling. And if you can tune into that first, which you teach in your meditation all the time, mm -hmm. then follow that guidance. And if you feel really drawn to a section, I, I'm not beyond getting a magnifying glass and going right into that area and seeing what is happening because there's layer upon layer upon layer. Mm -hmm. And you don't know where those codes are. For 25 years, I tried to research alphabets and letters and codes and Tibetan writing and angelic writing and trying to match up the squiggles. And then finally, when I was given that, you know, it's an energetic code that's in the drawings. You don't have to know what the symbol is. Okay. It freed me to just say, oh, okay. Yeah. And I would open my third eye and just allow this to come in and activate whatever it was supposed to activate for me. And mm. people have cried. People have spoken of really intense dreams. People say, I can date the time that I made this choice and I, my whole journey changed to when I came to your house to see Alma's drawings. And so you never know how it's going to happen for somebody else. So I avoid right. trying to tell people how to do it. They'll know. Yeah. Because they're sold 
brought them to Alma in the first place, helped them select the one that was going to do it for them. And then, of course, you would honor that soul's wisdom because they're a master unto themselves for how to use it. Right. Yeah, and, and it it makes me think of another question. I think I already know the answer, but I do want to just <laughs> verbalize um, the energy that's carried in the work. You know, as you say, it's very individual and it's not a cognitive exercise. It's, it's an energetic thing. Um, do you have speculation or, or insight into if you place one of the pieces in your home and you have people, so for me, for example, I, I, and I think that a lot of people are like this. I'm kind of the outlier in my family. You know, it's, I, I'm not surrounded by people who are really into energetics and consciousness and, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, oh, that's mom's thing. (laughs) You know, know that. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, so I'm, I'm just thinking like, if that's the case, when it's hanging in the home or it's on display, even if you're not tuned into it, I'm guessing you, you benefit from just the energy because it's changing the energy in that, in the home. But nothing to do with, um, with the teaching or believing or anything. You know, it's funny, you know what I have found? When I go to my friends' places around town or whatever, whoever's bought prints, so many of them are hanging in the bathroom. Really? Because people sit there. And they're just alone there. And they can take in Alma's drawings. I mean, replace your Reader's Digest book, Joke Jokes, with one of Alma's pictures. (laughs) And I was surprised how many people have chosen to put it there. And also, I would also, some people talk about ordering and the different sizes and getting them framed and everything. That Well, I live in a small place. I don't have a place for them. Nobody said they have to be framed on the wall. Yeah. I know some people have drawers full of whether it's the cards or whether it's the eight by tens or the ones that I sell are 11 and a half, 11 by 17 was the largest size I could get printed in this laser format mm-hmm. um, without getting into expenses. And I try to keep everything really affordable, you know, $10 for a card, 15 for eight by 10 and $20 is the most that right. they're they're very like affordable. And you don't have to have them all framed on your wall. You can use them. And I know healers who put them in their healing room. And when they're doing sessions with people, sometimes the person calls for an Alma drawing and they'll place that on the bed or on them or on a chakra or something. So they can be moved and utilized and handled and not necessarily having to have room for them on a wall. That's a great point. Yeah. Wow. Oh, this has just been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. And and more than that, thank you for accepting your mission and doing it so beautifully and keeping these things accessible. Like you said, the, these are very affordable, so they can be a part of anybody's journey. Um, and again, I go back to the way that I felt when I pulled the website up for the first time. And it was, it was like, I opened a treasure chest. It was like, what is this? Oh my gosh. I, I just can't stop looking. And I want to know more about this, 
you know, what's the story here? Where did these come from? Um, and so, you know, this is, but I had no idea it even existed until I did. And then it was like a big rainbow just appeared, you know, for more, I mean, that doesn't even do it justice, but so I just really honor you and I thank you. And even during our discussion, I have felt activity and, uh, you know, in my own third eye and crown connection. So I, I just, I am so grateful. Thank you so much. What a blessing to have you here. Thank you for inviting me to do this. And I'd like to just in closing address this particular time that we're going through. And some people are utilizing and dipping into their well with prayer and sending out prayer or vibrations or images. And all along over the last, I guess it was about a decade ago, I said, you know, this is how I fight ISIS, (laughs) is that to me, consciousness or the morphogenetic field or the ethers is a very neutral thing. It's not judgmental or, you know, weighing or or losing, um, winning or losing. It's neutral. And we impress upon it our imagery, our sound, our thoughts, our music, anything is going out there into the Akashic records and consciousness just reflects everything that's been put into it. So as we've been putting out hateful thoughts and hateful images and violence and misogyny and racism and all of that, that's what's made consciousness heavy and dark and dense. But if we send out fantastic music, beautiful masterpieces of artwork, really high vibrational frequencies of meditation and thought and prayer, and images like Alma's drawings that carry with it the light, that's then impressed on consciousness, which is neutral, and it goes, oh, we can lighten a bit now with that. Mm -hmm. So I use Alma's imagery to combat all the dark forces without naming them, without fear, without anything. I just... Alma said, they're for people to see, the more the merrier. And that's pretty simple. The more images that get out, the more people who stumble on the the, um, website, as you did, the more people's crowns that are tingling. That's going to elevate consciousness and humanity at this time. And this time is really a dark time. Mm -hmm. And it needs Alma's drawings more now than ever. And that's what I think is its function. That is beautiful and I could not agree more and I'm so glad that you verbalized that and and really helped to frame the importance of this in this in this time that's beautiful thank you good thank you, thank you so much what a blessing and thank you for listening please do check out the almamatters.ca website I've got the uh, link in the show notes and pass along this episode, share, rate, review. All of that helps those uh, tricky algorithms in the podcasting world and helps to keep this work going and, uh, and help other people to find it. So I appreciate it. I appreciate your support. Thank you, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.